why do we study the Bible? Why do we study the Bible? I think if my memory serves me right, our brother last week actually mentioned a text that came to my mind in answering that question. And that text is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, which is a very well-known verse. It's a very important verse. It's, it's, it's one of those verses that r- brings with real clarity the essence of why we study the Scriptures before us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 where we read there, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All Scripture is theonostis. All scripture is breathed out by God. God's very breath. We know when you talk, if you hold your hand in front of your mouth, you can actually feel your breath coming out. And when we're studying the scriptures, we are reading the very words that God has given to us. He has spoken. And that's why we study them. Our Creator has something to say to us. And we take time to listen. We take time to seek to understand, to see it in its fullest context, and to see what it says and how it applies to our daily lives. God Our creator, God, our judge, has spoken. And we find out that God has something important to say. Something which will fully equip the man of God for everything he needs. That the man of God may be perfect, may be complete, thoroughly finished unto all Good works. Then Second Peter chapter one verse twenty. Second Peter chapter one verse Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we learn something about how God brought his word to us. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 
the testimony, the self-attestation of Scripture is that God has spoken and that he did so by the Holy Spirit using man to speak through spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God's Word deals with the greatest of subjects and is to be studied carefully. If you turn back a couple of pages to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. And Peter here is talking about God's salvation. And he says at verse 10, of which salvation uh, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. The prophets, those who received God's revelation and have passed it on to us, took time to study it. But the subject of that revelation is salvation. The salvation of your souls, which he says there at the end of verse 9, of the grace that should come unto you, the end of verse 10. Salvation. The grace of God in saving people like us. The great subject of God's revelation. And how true it is, when we look around... We can see the stars. We can see the oceans. We can see the trees. So many amazing, wondrous things that speak to us of God's power, majesty in creation. But it is only when we come into his written revelation that we learn about his grace, about the way of salvation. Looking at the world, we can see the wonders of creation. We can also see how contaminated it is and how things have gone wrong and how there is trouble at every hand. But it's when we come into God's written revelation, we learn what has gone wrong. We learn that God has a plan. We learn that God is working out his purpose. And he told his prophets about this. He gave them details that they spent time searching and inquiring diligently into. When Peter here is writing of the prophets, we can look back and we we call it the Old Testament. That was the Bible which the apostles used. The scriptures 
And we too can study them. And we can diligently search them and understand and learn from them. We have the great advantage because we can see the fulfillment of those great prophecies. We can see how they were lived out, as it were, in the suffering, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Jesus had taught during his earthly ministry. We can see this with great clarity after his resurrection. Remember there, Luke chapter 24. He had risen. And uh, there were disciples, though, who hadn't grasped that he was going to rise. They set off on the road to Emmaus. What sort of mood were they in? They were despondent. They were disheartened. They were sorrowful. They spoke to him of their hopes, but also of their despondency. And we, we come to the words of Jesus in verse 25, where he said, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses... And all the prophets expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things, the things concerning himself, Moses, and through the prophets, the great subject, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, the Savior who would come, the Savior who has come. God has spoken. God has revealed to us concerning his great salvation. He's spoken to us of his grace, his love. And we have the scriptures which we can take time to search and to diligently study. You see there in Luke 24, the 44th verse, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. All things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, what are they about? They're about the Lord Jesus Christ. They are about the promised Messiah, God's anointed, the Savior who would come, the Savior who has come. They're about 
his suffering, his death, his resurrection. Jesus was very clear. He showed them. It was a detailed study as they walked on that journey. He opened up the scriptures and said, Luke, look at that. And explained it to them. They weren't using the written record, but they were familiar, I believe, with a lot of the Old Testament scriptures. And he was certainly able to tell them what it said. Could we begin to open up the Old Testament and explain where it's speaking about the Messiah, those great promises, to show people where it speaks of his, of his suffering, of his death, of his resurrection? This is what the Lord Jesus did in that great Bible study there on the road to Emmaus. Interestingly, if you turn back to the, turn over a page there, or two, to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and the 45th verse. Remember there that Jesus had been calling. You see there in in verse uh, 43, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and, and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And verse 45, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. There was an understanding that Moses had spoken about the coming Messiah. The books of what we call the Old Testament are not some ancient relics separated and totally distinct and different from what we have in the New Testament. They provide the foundation. They have the same message for us. Of course, the New Testament is showing us the fulfillment. And so we can see it with greater clarity, perhaps. But there was Philip finding Nathaniel. And in doing that, his message was, he understood Moses had promised a Messiah And he saw that fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a a problem though, isn't there, when we, we come with the Scriptures. We can study it. We can proclaim it. But not everyone believes it. It's not as simple as standing on the street corner and accosting people and telling them to repent and believe and explaining about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's not even as simple as explaining to them that they are sinners before a holy God. 
Why don't why don't we see everyone believe when the message is announced, the proclamation is given? First Corinthians chapter two and the fourteenth verse. But, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And in Second Corinthians chapter 4, we read, At the third verse. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. There's blindness, blindness, spiritual blindness. And that's why people do not immediately hear and believe just because we explain the gospel to them. We have to remember that naturally speaking. In Adam, we are dead. That's the big problem. And so are those who we are speaking to about the things of God. The natural man receiveth not. They are dead. That's the problem like that valley of dry bones. There's no life in the bones. There's no hope. We have God's message of salvation. We can have that assurance that it is worthwhile preaching the message. Not only have we been told to proclaim it, but Jesus promised, John chapter 10 and the 27th verse, where he said there, remember that great passage where he's speaking about being the good shepherd. He says, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So, when the voice of Christ is heard, his sheep do hear, they do follow. We are called upon to proclaim God's word, and we can have that assurance that rather as happened with 
Lydia, Acts chapter 16 and the 14th verse. Remember, Paul had arrived at Philippi. He met that group of women who were praying by the riverside. And she had attended there, we read, under the things which Paul was spoken of Paul, the things which are spoken of Paul. But just notice what it says there in verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. We can preach God's word with confidence because we know he will bless it. He will open hearts to receive it. He will give spiritual sight. New life. Those dry bones will be given life. This is God's method. This is what we are called to witness for. Paul may plant an Apollos water, but it is God who gives the increase. Proclamation of God's truth is a spiritual endeavor. We are here to faithfully witness to cast the seed out upon the ground. We are to look to the Lord, to bless those endeavours, to draw man unto himself. So it is that we see in, in, in the book of Acts, as we come earlier in the book of Acts there, chapter 1, What did Jesus say just before his ascension? They were were asking questions about restoring the kingdom to Israel. They were interested in the national glory of Israel. Verse 6. But his answer in verse 8 is far more significant. He says... Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That is the work of the church today. That is the work, the reason that individual disciples of Jesus are left here to be witnesses for Jesus. Not in our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us back round to Acts chapter 2. We've noted that we we study 
the Bible because it's God's revelation to us. It's theonostos. It is God's very breath. He has breathed out this word. The great subject is of salvation and God's grace. It's a spiritual exercise because naturally we are dead and we need that work of the Holy Spirit to open hearts, to open eyes, to receive the truth. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out in that time of mighty witnessing really began. And we see in Acts chapter 2 there a great example of preaching. It was Peter brought a great sermon to them. Now, what happened there? Acts 2 is, is famous for the speaking of many languages. Chapter 2, verse 11, which follows a, a long list of places. People had gathered from across the Roman Empire and further afield. They had gathered at Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And this was the testimony. We do hear them speak in our languages, our tongues, the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. These disciples, who were unlearned men in so many respects, were used in a mighty miracle of communication. They were able to speak in the mother tongues of these various gathered people to speak of some of the glorious things of God. This was met with a mixture of amazement and confusion and false accusation. It was a mighty miracle. But the mighty miracle did not fill up the church. It did not bring anyone to repentance and faith. The miracle was important. It was a testimony. But this is an interesting quote from a chap called Richard Longnecker. The miraculous is not self-authenticating, nor does it inevitably and uniformly convince. There must also be the preparation of the heart and the proclamation of the message if miracles are to accomplish their full purpose. Sadly, some friends have been rather misled by what they see as exciting miracles. And they think 
such signs and wonders are the answer to the problems of evangelism. No, they're not. Deuteronomy 13 has a word of warning. Deuteronomy 13, verse number 1. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them, thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. The miraculous can on occasion be real, but actually be leading people astray. That's what this verse in Deuteronomy 13 is telling us. If it comes to pass, thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet. Why? Because his teaching was false. His teaching was error. The teaching, the truth, is to be the foundation that we build upon. Not the gimmicks. Not even the miraculous. If it was even real. And this verse says that some of it can be real. Yet promoting error. The Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. When you put his word above the experience. And that's where we must always come back to. The foundation is to be the word of God. And so it was that after this mighty miracle, Peter started preaching. As we look through, and we haven't got time to deal with this message. We will notice, though, as you look through it here, as Peter began to speak, he, verse 15, dismissed as ridiculous the charge of drunkenness. But then, verse 16, he turned them to God's word. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it goes through what Joel had had to say. And then he brings their own situation before them. Verse 22, he points out 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear these words, ye men of Israel. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourself also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel of foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. He takes God's law and says, you're guilty. You are guilty of the death of the one approved of God by irrefutable evidence. And it's at that point that he turns to the psalmist. Verse 25 for David speaketh concerning him. And he, he begins to quote from Psalm number 16. He has a number of things to say there. All of which are true about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see there, Verse 24, it was not possible that he should be holden of death. And the reason it was not possible is because the psalmist had said these great words, which include at the end of verse 27, well, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. David had died. David's body had been buried. But David had said these great words which spoke of his body being raised from the dead before it saw corruption. What could it mean? It didn't apply in all that rich fullness. It didn't apply to David. But it did apply to Jesus of Nazareth. His body had been raised before it saw corruption. It had been an evil plan to arrest and execute Jesus. They had meant it for evil, just as Joseph's brethren had meant it all those many years ago. Just as Haman meant it in the book of Esther, as we've been seeing recently. An evil man with an evil plan. But God was working out his purpose. So, Jesus won a great victory through the actions of these 
evil man. Verse 29, you made clear there that Peter says, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Couldn't possibly be about David. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath unto him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. That was a promise that had been given to David. Back there, it, it was a, speaking of his son. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and will establish his kingdom. Yes, that spoke of Solomon, but it spoke of one far greater than Solomon. Which you can see in Psalm 132, verse 11, and Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And Peter ended up his message here with another Reference to the Psalms. We see here, verse 32, This Jesus hath God raised up, wherewith we are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter went back to Psalm 110 and demonstrated another psalm that didn't apply to David literally. But it did apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah has been exalted after his resurrection. And it's in that context that he then goes on to call upon them to repent. He called upon them to believe, to be baptized. And we see that there were many that gladly received his word and were baptized. Such that in verse 41, there were added about 
thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. God's word proclaimed is God's method. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is the work of the church today. That is our solemn duty and responsibility as a local church. And individually, we should have an understanding of what God's Word says. An ability to discern the truth of what is being preached. To examine the Scriptures to see if it be so. And also then to be able to speak, to give an answer for the hope that lieth within you. We've 